Uh, a few weeks ago, Jeff emailed me and told me that him and Mr. Mike Merle were doing a series on idolatry. And so I thought, well, I already have an idea of what I want to do my sermon on, and, and it kind of fits. So uh, we're basically doing a three-week series on what idolatry is. And just a refresher, if some of you weren't here or uh, don't know what idolatry is, it's basically when we idolize something above God. We, we worship that thing above the one who made us. When we worship uh, something else other than the one who made us, that's called idolatry, and it's a sin. Okay? So that's kind of what we're talking about today a little bit, idolatry of self. And we're going to go from Genesis 3. But before we get into that, I'll share a little bit of a story from Sir Arthur Conan O'Doyle, who wrote The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, You guys know that it's now made into movies, which has probably made a lot more famous for the younger generation. But uh, he tells a story of where Sherlock Holmes and Dr. John Watson, they go on a camping trip. And they get everything together, and they're out there. They have a nice meal, have some Petri wine, have a good time. And then night comes, and they get into their tents, and they go to bed. At about 3 a.m., Holmes nudges Watson and goes, Watson, look look up into the sky and tell me what you see. And Watson goes, I see stars, lots of stars. And Holmes says, and what does that tell you? And Watson says, well, astronomically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Astrologically, it tells me that... uh, that uh, there's billions of galaxies and potentially billions of, star- of planets out there. And uh, theologically, it tells me that God is great, he's huge, he's massive, and that we are really small. Meteorologically, it tells me it's about 3 a.m. And, uh, sorry, oreologically, it tells me it's about 3 a.m. And meteorologically, it tells me that uh, it's going to be a beautiful sunny day tomorrow. Why? What does it tell you, Holmes? And Holmes says, Watson, you idiot, someone has stolen our tent. And uh, that, that's just it. Sometimes in life, we miss the most obvious things. They just, t- because we're, we're either distracted by, by something, by our own smartness, or trying to prove our smartness to someone else, or, or we, we try to have all the fancy lingo. Maybe, maybe we do. We have the terminology right. But we miss the most important thing in life. We miss the most important thing in life. And there's a couple examples from the Bible that I'll give, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. In 2 Kings 23 and also in 2 Chronicles 34, King Josiah is crowned king at the age of eight. Okay, so he gets put into um, royal, or he is royalty, so he gets put into the kingship. And at age 16, it tells us that he starts to pursue God. He starts to look after, chase after God. Age 20, he starts cleansing the land of idols. Age 26, he starts to go into the temple and clean the temple from idols. While they're cleaning the temple, the priest is in there and finds in the corner, all dusty and wrecked, the book of the law. Israel has is, been given the book of the law by God through, through angels to Moses. And it was, it was their Deuteronomy tells us, 17 tells us that they were supposed to read, the kings were supposed to read the book all the time, that they were have their own copy, that they were to meditate on it. And the book of the law had been lost of all places in the temple, gone. And so the priest came, gave it to King Josiah and read it to him. And King Josiah tore his clothes and wept. Look what we're missing. We're missing the word of God to us. And, and it was lost in the temple. The most important thing was missing. Then we move to the New Testament, 
to the story of Jesus in Luke chapter 2 with his parents and probably family and friends and everybody coming to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And they're all there celebrating, and in the midst of the celebration, uh, they go back to the hometown without Jesus. Jesus is missing. And it isn't for a whole day that his parents realize, hey, where's Jesus? He's not with us. And, uh, and then it wasn't until three days that they actually find him, and they find him in the temple with the scribes and the Pharisees talking with them. And in the midst of the celebration, in the midst of life, in the midst of the Passover, they're distracted from the most important thing in their life. It's not like they, they missed their, their, they're missing their pen or they lost their keys. It's like their son is gone. The most important thing in life, in their life, their son, the presence of Jesus, they forgot about him. He was gone. And so those two things are what I want to hold in tension here. The presence of Jesus and the word of God are missing in our lives, in their lives. And those are the most important things. And so what is the most important thing? Sometimes in our life, we're just missing. It's just gone. And so that's a little bit of what we're going to talk about today. And the answer to that question, I believe we're going to go through a little bit of Genesis chapter 3. And the answer lies in there. And so, will you pray with me this morning before we go to the Word of God? Father, we thank you that you are here, that you are a good God and that you love us, that you created us. And as the same sun melts wax and hardens clay, I pray that our hearts would be like wax before your presence today. God, that you would have your way with us. Father, we are stubborn people. We, we, put, we have so much sin in our lives that we, we put so many things above you. And, and often we put ourselves above you and above others. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of our minds to see that. That you, by your Holy Spirit, would reveal to us conviction of sin where we need to be convicted an encouragement where we need to be encouraged. Father, that you would have your way today in this place. Even if we come to church because it it feels good, Father, that you would forgive us for that, that we'd be coming here because it's about you, it's about your people. I pray that you'd build your church today as you promised that you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So, Father, we give this time to you. We pray that you'd um, open our eyes to the wondrous things that are in your word. And that is the psalm we just read said, that our eyes would shed streams of tears because people have not kept your word, your law. So, Father, we just uh, humbly, we submit before you, your presence, your power. You are king. You are God. You are to be worshipped. Nothing else. Pray, have your way with us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So we start in Genesis chapter 1, I mean, sorry, chapter 3, verse 1. And uh, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Someone once said that there's two animals in the Bible. One is the serpent, which is proverbially known to be wise, wise as a serpent, right? And the other is an ass, which is proverbially known to be dumb. And the, the ass got it right, and the serpent got it wrong. And so we'll look at what the serpent got wrong here. And the first thing you'll notice is that he says to Eve, did God actually say? Did God actually say? What he's doing is casting doubt in the mind of Eve. And and I think many of us don't understand the difference sometimes between doubt and, and questioning. We can question God. We can question Christianity, put it to the test of logic, drill it hard, ask it hard, see what's it made of. But to doubt is to call God character into question. It's like, did God actually say that? It's calling God a liar. It's unbelief. It's a sin. We can't doubt what God says. God's word is true. So we shouldn't be doubting him or his words, but we can question. We can go, God, you know, how does this work? But we can't go, God, did you say that? Like, you are, I think you're lying, you know? That's doubting, okay? And uh, the second thing here is it say, he says, you will not surely die. Okay, so he flat out contradicts what God says then. So he kind of plants that seed of doubt. Then he contradicts God because they do die. Um, and then he says, um, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now he starts to tell some kind of truths in here. He says, uh, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's true. Their eyes are opened and they see, oh, there's good and evil and they become like God. Because what they did in making that decision is reject God as their God. And so who else is left to become God but themselves? So in rejecting God, they become God. What the, what the serpent says here is true. And, uh, and this is where the whole problem lies. This is not an arbitrary decision like they're just like, oh, I think I'm going to put my cowboy boots on and walk like I'm in charge, you know, like I'm the big guy today. I'm the honcho. I'm the, I'm the big kahuna. It's, it's not like that. Adam and Eve made a decision of the heart. They, didn't, they made a decision to dethrone God in their lives and put themselves on the throne of their own lives. So that's what this is about. Adam and Eve's decision here represents all of our decisions because if any one of us was in that place in the garden, we would have done the exact same thing. And we do. We do. We constantly reject God as our king. And, uh, and so we are our biggest problem. We are our biggest problem. We want to replace God with ourselves and become God. And, and that's just the way it is. We make our own judgments we make our own decisions about life. We want to retain all our rights. We, uh, we want to be our own boss. We act as though we are not bought and paid for with a price. We don't want to submit to anybody. This is, this is how we live. And, uh, and, and it's wrong. 
we sit on the throne of our own hearts. There's no concept of stewardship in our society anymore, as in God has given this land, this place, this earth, our lives, our money, everything to us so that we can steward it and be God's hands and feet in this world. It's not all, but we act like it's ours. We take it all back. And uh, there's a song by Frank Sinatra. Some of you older, the older generation will know that song. It's called, I Did It My Way. Uh, I Did It My Way. And uh, as I was thinking about this, this sermon and thinking about that song, it came to my mind. And then I started writing uh, a, poet, a poem about it. And uh, this is not my best poem, but I thought that the point fits really well. And so I will uh, read that poem. And this, this is what it says. It says, The chorus, I did it my way. The loud, proud cry of humanity. Any other choice would be insanity. So we all sang, I did it my way. I did it my way, simply the highest way. But who would think their way the highest if they didn't think themselves the greatest? You are your own God. You did it your way. Alas, we are gods. We did it our way. But who is really writing our life script? Were we meant to be worshipped or worship? One who through love blows our minds away. And so the, to me, this was just kind of came to me and I lost inspiration, so it stopped there. <laughs> but it, it just came to me as part of, you know, us, us taking back our lives. But when we understand we are created by God, he's the one in charge. He's created, we are creation. We didn't create anything. And so that's what we need to understand. Now, if you're thinking, I, I, I don't think I'm the biggest problem in my life. Like, I'm not a big, I'm not, I'm not, how could I be the biggest problem in my life? Well, you are. Let me ask you some questions. Who has lied to you more than you have? Who has broken promises to you more than you have? Who has justified sin in your life more than you have? Who has assaged or eased the guilt in your life more than you have? Nobody. You, you are your biggest problem. It, it, it's true. Malcolm Muggeridge said this. Um, he said, The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. The depravity of man means man's sinfulness and his inability to get rid of his sinfulness. So his, his, he's stuck in a, he's dead in his transgressions. There's nothing he can do to save himself. So that's what the depravity of man means. It says, at once the most empirically verifiable reality. What that means is it's obvious. You can see it. Everybody can tell the reality of man is that they're sinful. Everybody knows that. But at the same time, we all say, no, it's not true. I'm, I'm good. And we want to say that. We want to think that. It, it's a fuzzy thought. I'm good. I'm not that bad. But our world teaches us that we're all good. We just sometimes mess up. And maybe you think your sin is not a big deal. And sometimes I think that my sin is, is not a big deal. But when we think that, the reason we think that is because we have a low view of the one whom we're sinning against. We have a low view of the one we're sinning against. So if you sin against a rock, you're not very guilty. If you sin against a human, you're guilty. If you sin against an infinitely holy God, you are infinitely guilty. 
Have you ever been in, um, in an act of creation that's just absolutely overwhelming and astounding to the point where you're, you're just in silence and in awe? Like uh, in, in some huge roller waves in the ocean, I've, I've been in while they're just take, carrying me and there's nothing I can do and I'm just like completely at the mercy of the power of the ocean. And it, for, for a minute, it just, it's scary. It's just like, wow, like I feel like my life is in the ocean's hands. Like it could, it could do whatever. Like it's so powerful. Or, or I've been in several typhoons in Taiwan and, and while I was there for a few years, several people, a lot of people died in the typhoons. But uh, while, while they're going hundreds of kilometers an hour, the wind and the rain and signs and trees are going down the road and you're just completely at the mercy of that. It's just so powerful. There's a moment of just awe there. And there's a terrifying respect you have for that power. And that's what we need to have for God. It's holiness. We need to have a terrifying respect, not, not, not in a bad way, but to, to take a moment and go, oh, you're that powerful. You, you are that holy. You are that good. Like, so much more. And in the midst of all the, you know, all the, the incredible power of creation, Jesus stands up in the boat and speaks to the storm and says, peace be still. Jesus, God, is over all the elements. He's over all of creation. He's Lord of all of that. How could we have a low view of him? He is powerful. And uh, there's a story. Uh, so we need to have a terrifying respect for his power and majesty and holiness. There's a story in Acts chapter 5. It talks about Ananias and Sapphira, the beginnings of the church. They sell their property and say, hey, we're going to give all our money to God. We're giving all the money that we got from this property to God. And they come to Peter and said, here's all the money. And it wasn't all the money. And it says right there that they lied to the Holy Spirit. And so Peter confronts them. And they say, yeah, that's, that's true. That's, that's the money. That's all of it. And they're lying. They were struck dead instantly. Instantly. And we might go, whoa, that's, that's harsh. That's really like judgment. Oh my God, why is God so angry at that? Like, isn't that a little overreacting? But I think two things. First of all, that death is not the worst thing that can happen to a Christian. It's not. Jesus has been there, done that. Second of all, um, I think if you're a Christian, that those kinds of things are actually acts of God's grace and his mercy. God was setting a precedent for the early church and saying, hey guys, this is what I think of sin. Bam. That's what God really thinks of sin. And so I think it was gracious for him to show us his view of sin. We need that. We need to see sin the way God sees sin. David cries in the psalm we read this morning, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not obey your law. We need to have God's view of sin. I need to have it. Let's go to the next verse here. Genesis 3, 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, 
She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And you might be thinking, and, and I've, I've thought this before, I asked this question, it's just a piece of fruit. Like, what's the big deal? Or, or, or maybe you tell, you tell a lie and, and God's angry or sin, and you're like, all I did was say some words. That's all I did. I just spoke some things. And didn't happen to be true. But that's all. It was just words. It was just a fruit. Why is God so angry? And in that question, we're assuming two things. We're assuming that, like I said before, one, God is not very holy. And one, we are holy. Or we're not that unholy. We're not that bad. So when we say, God, why are you so angry at sin? We're having a low view of God and a high view of ourselves. We're saying, God, you're not holy, and actually I'm pretty good, so why are you so angry at me? I just messed up a little bit. You hear what I'm saying here? We, have, we, have, we, we change it around and make God less holy and make ourselves more holy when that's not the reality. Uh, <laughs> and so we, we say, I'm a good person, I'm a good person. But um, that's what the world tells us. And uh, what, his name's uh, Steve Turner. He wrote a satirical poem and he said, he said, <laughs> man is essentially good. It's just his behavior that lets him down. And that's the current view in the world today. Man is essentially good. It's just his behavior lets him down. And just like the Malcolm Muggeridge quote, it's, it says, the depravity of man is obvious. We just deny it. We say we're good. It's only our behavior that lets us down. And so what that is doing is it's detaching sin from us. Say, oh, the sin, is, oh, no, I'm good. I just, little behavior problem over here. That's all. And so we detach the sin from ourselves, and we say, no, it's just our behavior. It's just, yeah, I just messed up. I slipped up. Maybe we don't even say I sometimes. Yeah, things should have been done differently. Yeah, I mean, you know, everyone does that, right? But everyone has behavioral issues, but we just need more education. We just, you know, need to evolve better. Some of the most wicked people in the history of the world have been extremely educated. Geniuses. And I think it's their intelligence that allows them to wreak more havoc because essentially their heart is wrong. And the point is that our sin does not derive from our behavior. Our sin does not derive from, oh, the lie I told, or, or the, the fruit that I ate. Our sin does not derive from our actions. It derives from within us, our wicked and evil, rebellious heart. That's where the sin comes from. Um, our sin derives from us. Uh, Matt Chandler is a preacher in, in the Texas, and he, he often says, all right, how many of you have lied? How many of you have lied? And everybody has lied, Right? And says, you didn't just lie. You are a liar. Because he's, it, it, it's the, you are a sinner. Your heart is rebellious. The sin doesn't come from your action. The sin comes from you and your evil, wicked heart produces that action. And the, this verse just confirms that. Jeremiah 17, 9. It says... The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
is true. And you might say, oh, this sounds depressing. Man, <laughs> this is all about sin and we're all bad. We're all bad people. And that's true. We are bad. We are sick. We are depraved. We need to understand that. We really, really need to understand that. And here's the kicker. You're messed up. You can't fix it. You can't change it. There's nothing you can do about it because you're sinful from the core. How can you change yourself? You can try. You can do cover-ups. But it doesn't work. You cannot escape yourself so your wicked heart is within you. But the story of the Bible, as uh, Douglas Wilson sometimes says, he says that, that the overarching theme of the Bible, you can sum up the whole Bible in six words, and I love it. It's beautiful. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Six words. That's the story of the Bible. God comes, we, we've fallen. God comes, slays the dragon, slays the enemy, kills him, and we are the bride of Christ. We are the disreputable woman who has fallen into sin, who is full of idolatry, who keeps putting other lovers in front of God, the one who created us, and he's still faithful to come and pursue us and chase us and come after us. And eventually, when God says it's time, we get married. We're betrothed right now. We're in, engage, and we're in the engagement time. When Jesus comes back, that's when the consummation happens. And it's beautiful. The best love story that could ever possibly be told is God coming after humanity. That's why we love love stories. Because it's in us. We were created that way. We were created for love. We were created for intimacy. It's so amazing. It's the best love story ever told. We need to set our love story standards a little higher. We need not to betray our lover, our true lover, the one who loves us because he created us. The next verse we'll go is Genesis 3, verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This verse is the definition of religion. Every single one of you should ask, what is the difference between religion and Christianity? What is the difference? Every one of us should ask that question. This verse tells us right there, they knew they had sinned and they tried to fix it themselves. The definition of religion is starts with man and ends with man. Man's effort to fix himself. The definition of Christianity starts with God and ends with God. Man can't save himself, so God makes the effort. God pursues us. That's the difference between Christianity and religion. Religion says, I have to do it. My effort, my work, and it always falls short. Christianity says, you can't. Let me do it. Grace. Grace versus works. It's the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. It's a pretty amazing, blatant difference, too. The grace of God to come and chase after us because we're stuck and we can't get out of it. And he does for us. And so when they just try to fix themselves, they sew some fig leaves together to fix their own nakedness and their own shame. 
to cover themselves. Sin is perpetuating sin because we're all messed up. They're messed up. So they try to fix their mess up, but they can't because they're messed up. It's the way, that's the way religion works. It's like, uh, I, I, I'm not a parent yet, but it's, I was a child and I did this. Sorry, mom and dad. <laughs> Your parents come to you and ask you, hey, did you, did you do that? No. Uh, are you sure you didn't do that? Yeah. Uh, who, who, if you didn't do it, who did it? Uh, maybe my, my brother. Uh, your brother's not here, so uh, <laughs> uh, maybe my sister. <laughs> That's what we, we and, and, and you make one lie, and the next lie has to cover your mistake. And then you have to lie again to cover your mistake. And, you, and the sin is perpetuating sin. That's, that's what religion is. <laughs> religion is trying to cover our own mistakes, mistakes to make us presentable to God. And so again I say, we are our biggest problem. We are our biggest problem. And we can't fix that. The answer doesn't lie within us. And that's what the world would have us say. And a lot of New Ageism, uh, Eastern religions, Hinduism, they say we are God, God is inside of us. You have to find the Atman. You have to reach Nirvana, which means enlightenment. You have, to, you have to go after the end. You have to meditate because you are God. Yoga means to yoke with the divine. So you're, you're trying to yoke with yourself. The problem is the deeper you go within yourself, the more you're going to find your wicked heart. And the more you commit the sin of idolatry, putting yourself on the throne of your life instead of God. The next verse is beautiful verse. This is what Christianity is. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Adam and Eve tried to make, uh, uh, they sewed fig leaves together, tried to cover their shame. Didn't work. God comes down, sacrifices an animal, God's institution. God started um, sacrifice. It was God's idea. Because he says in Leviticus, it says that the life is in the blood. And the wages of sin is death. You sin, something has to die. Life is in the blood. Animal is sacrificed. But animal sacrifice was meant to be a foreshadowing, a picture of what was to come in the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, laying down his life, shedding his perfect blood, which was 100% man, 100% God. And because he was 100% man, he could legitimately be our sacrifice. Because no other human would ever be perfect. Every other human is sin, is sinful. And so Jesus had to be man and God and be a sacrifice and live forever so that his sacrifice lives forever. And so Jesus stands tall above every other figure in history, bridging that gaping chasm between man and God, between God's holiness and man's sinfulness. And Jesus stands in the middle saying, I am God and I am man. Colossians 2 says that in, for in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Uh, and I think I have the Hebrews verse up here too. Hebrews talks about him being man. 
And it says, oh yeah, there was the Colossians one. (laughs) Hebrews says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are also being tempted. There's so much in there. But essentially saying Jesus was made like us in every way. And he's endured every form of suffering you could ever think of. People thought he was illegitimate as a child because he was born of a virgin. And so he's probably called a bastard. He was mocked and insulted. His family thought he was crazy for a time. He was tortured. And he hung dying on a cross. And I don't know if, if any of you know the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. She wrote a book, and Dana's not here, but similar thing happened to her, than, or similar thing happened to Dana that happened to her. She was in the waves playing, and a wave came, crashed her into the sand and broke her neck. She became paralyzed from the neck down, quadriplegic. And she was crying out to God, going, God, what is this about? How, you know, you said, you said that you would become like us in every way. You've never been a quadriplegic. You don't know what it's like. And then she realized, she got a picture of the cross and realized God had his hands nailed to a cross and his feet nailed to the beam. And to even breathe, he had to push himself up, take a breath, come back down, and probably died from suffocation. And that Jesus was stuck there. He couldn't scratch himself. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't move his hands. He couldn't move his limbs. And that Jesus had experienced for a time what it was to be like to be a a quadriplegic. Jesus has gone through everything and worse than anything we could go through. He's experienced death. He can effectively, faithfully take our place and give us his sacrifice. And so there's an invitation today. Jesus died so you don't have to die. And Jesus rose from the grave and he lives so that you can live with him. It's amazing. And you might not like what I'm going to say, but I believe it's biblical. That every single person's life will glorify God. Whether by they take a hold of his grace or they experience his wrath. God is creator and he will be glorified. And those are the only two options. And so the invitation is here in the next verse. In uh, Genesis 3, verse 9, it says, And they heard the sound of Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? This is the first question God asks in the Bible. I think it's the first question he has to ask. This is not a geographical, locational question. Like, oh, okay, we're playing hide and seek. Where'd he go? Adam? It's not like God just, you know, he vanished before God's eyes. It's a question of relationship. It's a question of the heart. Adam, where are you? Where have you gone in relationship to me? You've sinned. This is right after they sinned. 
And Adam and Eve are hiding because they're, they, they're, they're ashamed. Jesus says, I am a perfect God. I'm a perfect man and a holy God. There's an invitation for you today. And he says to you, we can make an exchange. He says, I will give you my righteousness. All of it. His, all of his holiness, his purity, everything he is. And he says, you give me your garbage. All of your sinful, wicked, rebellious heart. Give it to me, all of it. You die to yourself. You take on his life. That's the invitation. And so I say, don't miss the most obvious thing in life. Your sinfulness and God's holiness. We know we're sinful. We just deny it. God is holy and he shows himself to us that way. He is holy. And if you're a Christian here, and you're thinking, but yeah, I, I sometimes sin. Yeah, just because you become a Christian doesn't mean you stop sinning. But God wants to sanctify you. That means he wants to continue to work on your heart to make you more and more and more like him every day. So that when we do meet, that it will be a beautiful, easy transition. And how do we become sanctified? How do we stop sinning? It's by grace through faith to l- looking at Jesus. We should not be looking at our sin, not looking at our holiness, not fixing our gaze on our do's and don'ts. We should be fixing our gaze on Jesus. There's a, a verse here. Um, Work out your sal- own salvation with fear and trembling. That's for the Christians. There's another one here that says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that means all the faithful people in history who have gone before us, We're surrounded by them. Now, notice the emphasis. It's on us. Let us also lay aside every weight. This is focusing on us. And we think, well, is this about our our effort, our work? I thought thought that's works and and Jesus was grace. But let's go on. It says, let us lay aside every weight. That means every distraction, everything that's holding us down. And sin, which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Looking to Jesus. That's how we do it. Looking to Jesus, the founder, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of God, the throne of God. We can have that joy even though we might have a cross to bear. We might have suffering because our joy is not dictated by our circumstance. Our joy comes from the one who lives within us, comes from the one who created joy, Psalm 16 tells us that at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. God is more full of joy than any human being, than anything else in existence. And we can have that joy by focusing on, by looking at him, not at our circumstance. Our joy does not come from our circumstance. It doesn't come from if you have a happy, a happy family, a big wallet, whatever. It might make you happy for a minute, but it doesn't last. It's not sustained. Joy is from the inside. And so I'm going to end today with a a quote from C.S. Lewis. And um, don't agree with everything he says, but he says there are only two kinds of people in the end. 
Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Who is on the throne of your heart? Who is on the throne of your life? God is asking, Genesis 3-9, first question, where are you? Where are you in relationship to me? He's asking us that same question today. God is pursuing us. He's chasing us. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me, will pursue me, will chase me all the days of my life. God is out after his lover. He is jealous for our hearts. He doesn't want us to have other lovers. He's asking you today, where are you? Where is your heart in relationship to him? We need to answer that question. There's going to be people up here to to pray with you if you want to come up and pray. If you want to receive that invitation that Jesus has for you today. Where are you? Let's pray. Father, we worship you for who you are. You are creator, your God, your king. Your love and your grace is, is, is available for us and it's being poured over us. And, and Ephesians tells us that you lavish your grace on us. You are a good God who pursues us even though we deny you. We pray that you would change our hearts to make us hate sin and love righteousness. Proverbs 8.13 tells us that the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. We need to be good haters and good lovers. Father, instill that love of goodness and that hatred of evil in our hearts. Help us to be more like you. We say we don't want to be on the throne of our hearts, Father. We, for, we ask for forgiveness for taking your place. And we ask that we would, you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to put you back on the throne of our lives. That we would live every day like that. That our worship would be to you, not to ourselves. That the chorus at the end of our life would not be, I did it my way, but that we did it your way, Jesus. That we trusted you enough. And so, Father, we pray that you would do your work here today. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.